We're back. Can you believe it? Another edition of the 30 cast. Gone for so long, but back again. Jared, about Mike, damn time, right? You were on vacation. You left the newsletter in my hands completely, and it's we're still in business. Yeah, it's I know. It's a miracle. I, I can't believe it either. I thought we'd get sued or something while we were gone. It was, I think there were some threats <laughs> while you were gone. I just didn't tell you about them. Uh, well, look, if you're new to this podcast, welcome. Uh, that's Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Mike Borkinoff of The Athletic. And we're back with another 30 cast, and we have a wonderful guest. I, I think one of the, uh, the best writers, the most exciting guests that we've had yet. And it comes at a very particular time, and, and perfect timing, really, uh, in a lot of ways that we'll delve into. It's Jeff Perlman, who is joining us now, and he is the author of a book you want to get. Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Divides of the USFL. Jeff, how are you? I just want to say, and I don't mean this as an insult, but... Okay, now I'm worried. <laughs> if I'm but this on. is a good start. If I'm one of the most exciting guests you've had, all I'm telling you is this. I'm sitting here. My toilet in the other room is running, and it's annoying me. <laughs> sitting uh, right next to a pile of unfolded laundry, and I just walked my dog and realized that I forgot to throw out the bag of poop. So when it comes to excitement, there's no touching me. I mean, like, we never said a writer's life is really exciting. It's all in context, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> not, not exciting. Enjoyable, but not exciting. <laughs> well, I mean, as we know from your many tweets about being in a Starbucks or a Panera or whatever and trying to write and get your job done, like, there are some shitty days as a writer, too. No okay. pun intended after your toilet anecdote. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. It's, uh, it's one of those jobs, right? It's a weird job because... Um, if you say this to someone who's not a writer, it sounds kind of pretentious, whatever. But people, I think people think it is, you know, like when I was growing up, the job, seeing guys who were writers, it seemed like a really sort of romantic notion in a way. Like, oh, you're a writer. And then you do it, and, and it's a great job, and it's super fun, and I love it. I love writing books. But I wouldn't call it romantic. It's a, it's a you know, it's a grind, just like any other job. It just happens to be fun. Very fun. It gets romanticized like a lot in other kinds of media, right? In the kinds of media that don't involve sports writing for a living. Well, now we all live in the woods in Maine, and you know, a pipe under on a by a fireplace with a you know a bear above our head or something. I think that's the there has to be like a Jim Croce song playing in the background, and you're typing furiously, and you look at the last line you wrote, and you know just what you want to say, and you type it. And it's perfection. And you print it out, and you just know you wrote the greatest thing ever. That literally has never happened to me. Never. You know, <laughs> in, our, in, in our newsletter last week, we had a little segment on writer's block and what writers do to get out of writer's block. I'm wondering if you, if you have any tips. What do you do when you're struggling to get through the, the next paragraph or a few pages of your book? Man, I got uh, three words for you that work every time. Happy days reruns. <laughs> That's good advice. Is that Nick at Night? Like, is that where we can find them? Well, now it's YouTube clips. So I, I, my go-to YouTube clip, it's either an OSFL game, but now I'm getting a little tired of that, or it's, uh, it's the, uh, the final episode in the history of Happy Days when Joni gets married. Hmm. I can't think of anything I didn't better. Think that... I got my writing juices flowing. <laughs> I'll tell you what I do when I have uh, writer's block and can't get over uh, what to write next. I tape this podcast because that's what I'm doing right now to procrastinate. Oh, yeah. That works out. Awesome. Or I just check Twitter and fire back at people who hate me or, you know, are mad. Or 
Well, uh, I assume that maybe that list grew a little bit longer based on the completely like polar world that we live in now. Um, yeah. What's the what's the reaction you've had to football for a buck so far? Uh, generally, very, very, very positive. Uh, I've never had a book that got. I'm not just saying this because it's not going to be my big seller. It's definitely the best reviews I've ever had for a book. Um, you know, I haven't had that many. The thing is, if you actually read the book, it's not a political book. It talks about Trump in very specific terms as a USFL owner. Um, so I think, I don't know, I've had people tweet me and be like, you know, I don't share any of your political views, but I really love that book. And that's actually really satisfying to me because I would hate, people ask me like, how has the book, how did the book change with Donald Trump running for and winning the presidency? And I always say, except for a, a mention in the epilogue about it, uh, I think zero. So. When did you start writing it? Like reporting it, I guess, not writing it. I started, so, um, I started while he was running. I was okay. working on it while he was running. I got the book deal before it was even, I got the book deal four years ago because I, it was a part of a two book deal with the Brett Favre book, Gunslinger. So, um, I got it four years ago, but I didn't work on it until the Favre book was done. So when, huh. once he like, I guess once he got the nomination or even when he was, uh, when he won the presidency, were you like excited, mortified? Like what was your reaction as to how the book would go and how that would have impacted? Well, I, it's really interesting because, um, I said this, I kept saying this to people and it's really true. Like, I think you could be Sean Hannity or you could be Chris Matthews and you could work on a USFL book. And there's only one conclusion to draw about Donald Trump from his USFL experience and that he was a greedy nightmare. You know, so it was weird working on that book while he was running. And some of the parallels were so eerie and so crazy. I mean, like past his prologue times a million where it was a very trippy experience uh, just to be seeing these things he did then, watching him do it now and just thinking, Jesus Christ, this is the exact same stuff, just on a different scale. Yeah, that must have been such a weird experience. And. I actually do want to talk more about Trump, but I actually want to go back even further. You talked about a little how this was part of a two-book deal, and you've tweeted a bit about uh, the struggles you had convincing publishers and your agent that this was a worthwhile topic. Yep. So uh, I guess, one, why were you so sure that you wanted to write a book about this, and what was that process of convincing seemingly everybody that this was something worth spending any amount of money on? Right. So I um, I grew up loving the USFL. It was my, it was just a thing. This is the comparison I use and I, because I really think it's true. Like uh, my daughter Casey is 15 now. And I think when she was five, we took her to Disney World for the first time. And there's something about seeing your kid at that age at Disney World where everything is just enormous and colorful and magical and the princesses are real and the characters are real and the character breakfast is delicious and everything about it is just magical. And that was me with the USFL as a kid. The helmets were magical. The uniforms were magical. Herschel Walker was a Greek god. Um, and I just always carried that with me. And I was always fascinated by the USFL. It just never left me in that way. Um, and I always thought it would make a good book because it was so mysterious and simultaneously riveting to me. Um, the problem with getting a book deal is it, <laughs> it wasn't that to many other people. Um, every book I've written so far, this is my eighth book, and the first seven... I would say were relatively obvious topics, like big ticket topics. They didn't all sell amazingly, but Walter Payton, you know, Brett Favre, the 86 Mets, even the, the one that sold the worst was Roger Clemens, but you could certainly make an argument it would have sold well. It had the chance to sell well. But the USFL was a 30-year-old obscure football league that no one under the age of 40 probably remembers. 
you know? So that was a tough sell on it. And the only, I don't think I ever convinced anyone it was a sellable book. Um, but I gave, I, I had a bunch of people bidding on the Favre book and I told uh, Hudden Mifflin I would take less for Favre if they gave me money to do the USFL. So I got the lowest advance I've ever received in my life to do the USFL. And as I was working on it and as Donald Trump sort of rose to the forefront and then rose to the presidency, um, they, my editor, Susan Canavan was telling me, man, this is, your book is rising up our charts as far as how much we're going to put into it and where we see it. So that was good. I mean, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but I, um, I can tell you now, and I know this will make me sound like a hack, but I mean it. I would give away this book and everything I've made off of it, the money I made off of it, for Donald Trump not to be president. <laughs> I mean, if you had, if that question was, uh, was ever like leveled to you, if you could have this, this like negative Faustian bargain, we would all be very pissed at you if you said no to that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you feel like that you have like insight on Trump that others don't have from working on this book? Because it's true that no one else really pursued Trump for all the coverage he receives and received. No one else pursued it from this angle. I imagine you must have uncovered some sort of stuff about him and that no one else had tapped, which seems hard to believe considering how much he's been covered. But this is just this little avenue into his life that seems like everyone else either forgot about or didn't care enough about to pursue. Um, yeah, I do, actually. If I, I was thinking during the, uh, during the campaign, if, if I were the Hillary Clinton campaign, I would have done, I would have paid for it a seven-minute movie to be done about Donald Trump in the USFL, and I would have released it to everyone. And I'd be like, <laughs> it happened 30 years. I'll give you the best example. It's Because it, to me, when they, when I saw this, I was like, wow, it's amazing. Um, in uh, 1985, when he was the owner of the Generals, Donald Trump signed Doug Flutie out of Boston College to be the quarterback of his team. And he paid him a six-year, $8.3 million deal with three years guaranteed. And at the time, that was the biggest salary in pro football. Um there was concern among other people at the generals how much money they were giving him. And Trump reassured them that, don't worry, I'm signing, I'm signing Flutie, but the other teams are going to pay for his contract. And he wrote a letter to the commissioner of the USFL that I have and to the other owners saying, I've done the league a tremendous favor. This is you know, going to be a boom. You can already see the dividends this is having on paying off for the league. And I expect all of you to pay part of Doug's contract. And I learned about that right around the same time the Mexico wall debate started, where he was saying, we're going to build the wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. And I was sitting there and my head exploded. I kept saying to my wife, Doug Flutie's a freaking Mexico wall. This is unbelievable. This is the same exact thing. Um, that during, the, uh, during the USFL, his enemy, his biggest enemy in the USFL was the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits, a guy named John Bassett. And John Bassett was the one guy who called out Trump. And... He wrote a letter that I posted I posted several times and actually leads off a book. A letter to Donald Trump that was the most blistering letter you will ever see to another human being. And he told the New York Times, Bassett did, I don't know why we're listening to this comment. Well, at the end of 1984, Bassett was diagnosed with brain cancer. And um, he really faded quickly. And Trump just stomped all over him. There was no empathy. There was no sympathy. It was just great. My enemy is wounded and I'm going to walk all over him. I mean, it was John McCain 30 years before John McCain. It really was. The lies about TV deals that were waiting for them in the fall when he had no idea. It was so, it's just, he lied recklessly, nonstop, all the time. And I just, I just kept reading this and thinking about this and researching it. 
and screaming, do not, I mean, in my head, do not, you, how are you believing this guy? It is all the same crap 30 years later. It really was. It was unbelievable. Did you ever, um, did you ever think at any point of whether you should change the focus of the book and try to make it like a political Trump analog type of book? I, I don't like, just because I assume that there have been a marketplace for it, especially now as we see like this cycle of someone else's a Trump books coming out, Trump just, you know, tries to deflect it somehow on Twitter poorly and then t- goes to the top of the charts. Yeah. No. Number one, because I, I didn't want to really write that book. Number two, I mean, this is this it was never in my head what you just said, but um, there's such an onslaught of Trump books, you know, most of which I bought because I was researching Trump, you know, along with the USFL. Um, no, I really wanted to write a USFL book. Like, that was my dream. That was actually my, my book writing dream was to write a USFL book. So the idea of shifting the focus to Donald Trump to score like a quick gain because he was in the news, it just never, it wasn't something that would have done it for me. I think it would have made me miserable. Instead of talking about Trump all the time, I mean, you said explicitly, like, this is not a Trump book. What's, what's like the most interesting interview you had uh, about the book or for the book that, that wasn't revolving around him? Oh man, there's so, I interviewed 430 people for this book Jesus. and I just love, I just love calling people. And I do love, that's my favorite part about the whole book writing is just sitting down, calling people. I love hearing, how did you find me? Like, that's my favorite thing to hear from, from someone. How did you find me? Um, I mean, Steve Young, for a big name guy, Steve Young was unbelievable. He was just great. He loves the USFL. He, he played for the LA Express for two years. He thinks it's the most fun he ever had playing football. He told just hilarious. I mean, he played for a team, the LA Express, where the owner ran out of money and uh, was a total con man. And the league had to take over, so they just stopped paying for everything. And, you know, Steve Young was paying for them to mow the lawn at the facility. And the last the last home game they had, it's kind of amazing, the last home game in the LA Express history in 1985, they were playing at the LA Coliseum, but it was a 90,000-seat stadium, they were drawing 4,000 fans. So they moved to Pierce College, a uh, NAIA school, and the final game was played there. The bus ride on the way to the stadium, the bus driver pulled over and stopped the bus and stood up and said, if someone doesn't pay me my 600 bucks, I'm not driving another inch. And they started passing a hat around just to get this bus driver to drive them to the game they were supposed to play in a few hours. And the game, in front of about 3,000 fans, it was Steve Young of the LA Express and Doug Williams of the Arizona Outlaws starting at quarterback. So those two guys went on to win Super Bowl MVPs in the coming years. I mean, it's just unbelievable stuff. So he was... Young was very, so was Doug Williams, actually. They were both really into it, the USFL. That's awesome. Well, not, not great for the bus driver, but uh, no. the story. I said to someone before, I was on the radio before, he's like, what are your best stories, blah, blah, And I said, I'll tell you what, give me a number, and I will give you that many amazing stories back to back to back. I could rattle off 100 stories from the USFL that are insane, make no sense, and will blow your mind. It's the craziest stuff ever. It really is. Well, you uh, just—I mean—I would love to hear more, but I was wondering from a journalistic aspect. Uh, aspect, you said you know I love calling people. You called what was it, four hundred and thirty people? Well, I talked to you. I called more than that. Sorry, you talked to four hundred and thirty people. I mean, we—I <laughs> think on a day-to-day basis, we all struggle with. All right, do I make one more call? Right, and the answer is usually in your head, yes, and you should, and, and all of that. Um, but you—you you really lived that, like. How did you come to this? I should always make one more call philosophy when it comes to reporting. Um, I think it's a couple of things. Number one, when I was at, so I started my career at the Nashville, Tennessee in, uh, in 1994 and I was really lazy. I was like your typical come out of college. I was like, you know, it sounds corny, right? But I was the, I was the editor of the student newspaper at the university of Delaware. 
And I was insanely cocky and I thought I was great. And I thought I could write my way out of any story, you know? And then you get to a newspaper and it turns out you suck. You're not nearly as good as you think you are and you don't know how to report. Well, I didn't know how to report. And my editor at the Tennessean was a woman named Catherine Mayhew and she really saved my career because I made so many errors and my reporting was so sloppy that she put me on the police beat, the, the late night police beat, and had me focus just on thoroughness and who, what, where, when, how. That was a really big moment for me. And then when I got to Sports Illustrated, and it was really, really competitive, and it was as high a level uh, of writing and of reporting that I've ever been around in my life. And I wasn't at that level, um, but I, I wanted to be. So I would sit there and just call, make the extra call, make the extra call, make the extra call. Uh, and when I started writing books also, it became really fun. It became a challenge. Like the first book I wrote was about the 86 Mets. And, you know, early on I learned they, they did a song called Get Metzmerized. It was a, like a rap song that was so ridiculously bad. And I got, a, I got a copy of the record. I bought it for like 20 bucks. And on the back, it listed all the backup singers. And they were, it turns out they were like George Foster's babysitter, George Foster's babysitter's friends. And he roped them all in. And I just started calling them one by one. And it's so fun when you call people who don't expect you to be calling or who have really great stories. Now I'm just addicted to it. It's like my collection is interviews. That's how I kind of view it. Like, how many interviews can I do for this book? Um, in fact, I'm working on a book now that's NBA related, and it's actually a little frustrating because NBA rosters are so small compared to the other sports that you can't possibly write. I mean, you could, but you don't, when you do an NBA book, you're not interviewing 400, 500 people because there aren't that many guys who played. So it's funny. So I'm writing a book myself right now, my first book. And when I started on it, when I started, yeah, too late now, I've already reached that conclusion, but it's too late now. When I, so what my what my agent or publisher or someone someone early in the process said uh, that the biggest sort of struggle they find with journalists who are writing books for the first time is that they spend too much of their sort of time reporting and they end up having to scrambling to write at the end because journalists always like you said feel like there's always another call. So I'm wondering how you sort of learn to balance that and make your deadline and be actually find. Like, know when it's time to sit down and, like, okay, let's write this thing, and this is just what it's going to be. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm pretty um, I'm pretty black and white with it all. So I, um, let's say I have two, well, the USFL, I had a really short amount of time because the money wasn't good, so I had to do it quick. So I gave myself one year, which is way too short, but that's what I gave myself. And I just said, all right, nine months, all reporting, nonstop. But once those nine months are over, I'm done. Now, if there's some lingering interview or someone calls you back, you're going to talk to them. But that's it. So I'm very sort of, you know, uh, black and white about that. And I just like give myself the amount of time I'm going to use. And then when I'm done with that amount of time, I'm going straight to the other thing. That's how I do it. That's it. That it works. Is, that Clearly is it works. An amazing amount of just like discipline. I don't know. It's so funny. If you saw my house or like my, my bedroom, you wouldn't think I'm very disciplined, sloppy and messy. But, uh, it's almost like, I think it helps that I don't have another job. Like, I need these things to work. I need these books to be done. I need to move on to the next book after I finish one book. It's not a thing where I can just take, you hear about writers who uh, sign up to do a book about, like, the whatever, Pat Riley Nips, and they have two years, and their editor complains because they hand in in three. I just don't feel that luxury, and maybe that helps me a little bit. I, I was listening to a podcast about Ian Thompson's new book, I, uh I forget what it's called, but it's about basketball. And he said that 
Uh, he pitched it and it got accepted in the summer of 2010 after LeBron signed with the Heat. And it just came out this year. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, wow. I didn't know that I, things can work like that. I could never do that. Never. First of all, I get so hyper-focused on a subject that it would actually leave me in a mental institution. You know, like I cannot, I cannot take seven years to think or six years to think about a subject that deeply. Like I... My kids need me to stop talking about the USFL. My wife needs me to stop talking about the USFL. I probably need to stop talking about the USFL soon. Like, it is all I have focused on for a very long time. And these things, you get so into the subject and you live and die with it. It's unnatural. It's like physically and mentally unnatural to, uh, to devote this much attention to one subject. So yeah. that's another motivator. I, I can imagine. I go to sleep thinking about stories and wake up thinking about the same story. I, I can't imagine what that's like, like a, yeah. a book. Yeah, it's crazy. It is crazy. But uh, it beats working, you know? That's true. I, I guess uh, in an inarticulate segue, I want to ask, what did you think when Sports by Brooks dropped his return tweet? I didn't know about it. Actually, it was Kyle Brandt from the NFL Network, who's a friend of mine, uh, was the first one to, I think he texted me. And I was like, what? That was my reaction, literally. What? I think that was all oh. of our reactions. I mean, you, yours is heightened, obviously. I don't know. I don't actually think because I didn't read the. I didn't grow up reading sports by Brooks, and I didn't even as a pro. I didn't. I didn't read it that much. Um, but I mean, I as you. I guess you're alluding to. I, I was assigned about two years ago by Bleacher Report to do where the hell is this guy? And I was probably the sixth or seventh, you know, writer who's been around a while who tried doing it. And I put a lot of energy and a lot of time into tracking down uh, Brooks and. Uh, the story never ran. It was a big mystery. Yeah, I mean, look, can you go into the process of that? Like, how, I guess, why did it not run? And what is that decision like when you're trying to figure out, all right, do we run it? Do we not run it? Like, how many more steps do we need to take before it's good enough to publish? Because that seems to be um, something that uh, some people in journalism are struggling with right now. It's just like figuring out when something's, you know, ripe enough to run. Yeah. So, um, it is interesting. It was not my decision not to run it, but I, it was made by Matt Sullivan at Bleacher Report. And I was upset at first, but I actually, later on, I was like, yeah, you know, that actually, that makes sense. So I spent a lot of time on that. I, I have a friend who's a private investigator. He did some work for me. Very nice guy. Tracked down a bunch of addresses. I went to a bunch of addresses. I called, I probably interviewed 40 people for that story, 50 people. It was a deep, 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 deep dive. And... I had one moment that was crazy where I drove to an address where he lived at one point in LA and I knocked on the door and some guy answered and I said, my name is Jeff Perlman, blah, blah. I'm looking for Brooks, for, you know, sports by Brooks. He's like, yeah, I don't even know. I don't know who that is. And he, okay, bye. And I realized later it was his old roommate who answered the door. And that was really like a mystery right there. And I went back, and he was never there when I went back. Um, I, the, the ultimate conclusion that I had, and it may not be true, but it was kind of what I came to, is that there were some sort of mental health issues at play, and that was the reason Matt decided not to run it. Um, and it sucked. That was a 6,000-word story. I showed it to a few of my closest, closest, closest friends. Um, I think they all found it pretty riveting. It really was like a mystery. It was, it was really like a mystery. Um, but I feel like out of respect for Matt, out of respect for Bleach Report, who still paid me for the piece, and out of respect for the subject matter, I just kind of 
I let it, I never, never did anything. I didn't post on my blog. I didn't enjoy anything. Just kind of moved on. Do you still like, feel like that's something in your quiver that you might want to go back to work on later? Or like, obviously the terms have changed now that he's, um, apparently tweeting and seems to feel his backpack. Is that something you can revisit? It seems like there's a really good story there that a lot of people want to hear from. Um, that could, I don't know, that could come up again. Yeah, no, I don't, uh, I just don't care that much. I mean, I, it's not that I cared when I was writing it. I'm kind of like, like people would be like, Oh, you should do people would be like, you should do a book about the world football league now. Right. Like I've gotten that a lot. You should do a book about the world football league. Cause you just did the USFL. I don't know if you guys are like this. I definitely am. Like the USFL was hard enough. Like I've done that. And now I have to move on to something totally different. I cannot do the same thing I just did. And with that Brooks story, it's like, okay, I did it. I gave my all. I wrote the story. I filed it. I busted my ass. And once I'm removed from it, I'm not that interested in going back. I think, uh, I think that's a common thought. I just wrote a story that like even overlapped a little bit with something I wrote previously last year. And I felt like, Oh God, am I just the guy who writes about this all the time? You know, like nobody wants to, nobody wants to make the same uh, songs all the time. Right. Yeah. Like I did a few, uh, a few stories I regret actually. I did, um, this isn't what you guys, you know, I wrote the John Rocker story in 99 and for SI. And then I wrote a couple of update stories over the years. And I think I did one of them, just being honest, for just the easy payday. It was like $2 a word. And it was 1500 words. And it was easy. But like that stuff after a while, it just feels lazy, you know, and it feels gratuitous. And it feels like you're kind of taking advantage of something that, that mattered to your career. So stuff like that, I try to ultimately avoid, I guess. Now, uh, you know, you get older and you get better judgment. Yeah, I mean, the it's it's tough though, right? Like, it, it's tough for anyone like trying to figure out what to write about. I mean, especially someone like you who has, I think, everything that they could possibly choose from, right? Like, trying to narrow in on a subject, and then figuring out whether you want to devote, I don't know, a month of your time if it's a really long feature story, or a years of your life if it's a book. That there's, I assume, there's a lot of pressure there because time is a really valuable commodity. Yeah, I don't feel pressure. I mean, I uh, with books, books take up the vast majority of my, my professional time, if that's what you want to call it. And um, I do put a lot of thought into what I'm going to write about next. Um, it's more exciting. I like the excitement of that. I like trying to figure out what the next book is going to be. And I don't love writing a proposal, but it is interesting to write a proposal. And um, yeah, I love that stuff. I find that part, I don't find it stressful. I find it really, I find the stressful part when you have to write it. And yeah, whatever, I gave myself four months now day after day you're sitting down and it's day 73 of writing about the same subject, you know, 73 days in a row. Um, those are the parts that I find sort of the grind, but I don't find it. I don't get nervous about it. I just, it's, it's, it's tough. You know? As, as someone who's done a lot of these investigatory pieces and like going into books and you talk to all these people, um, what, what are you, what do you think are the necessary tools for a reporter? To, to have and to use when they're trying to track down people, when they're trying to do these types of deep dives that you feel are, are just, you know, successful for you? Uh, I think number one is um, doggedness. You just have to be willing to call and call and call and call. I don't love it. I hate that moment when someone picks up a phone and they're not expecting you to call. Like, you, I do not enjoy that. Do you, do you have that anxiety that like of cold calling? You're like, ah, oh, crap, oh. I don't want to talk to them, but I need to. Here's a crazy thing, and I'm, I'm being sincere about this. I would always rather knock on a door of someone I don't know than call someone I don't know. Just for I the face-to-face -face interaction? Yeah. 
I hate, I feel like I can explain myself better. I sound less like a robocall <laughs> if I'm in person. I just do. I hate, I hate the cold call so much. Um, in fact, texting has actually made it a little more comfortable because you can text first and be like, hey, I do that now almost all the time. Because um, the cold call is so yeah. weird. Um, I also think you have to, along those lines, this is something, I mean, people have said to me, wow, you, you're so gutsy. Gutsy may not be the right word, but you know, I've knocked on a lot of doors. I'm knocking on a lot of strangers' doors. Wow, you're so gutsy. I am not gutsy. Like, I hate doing it. I hate, I hate the calling. I get nervous every time I knock on a door. Like, and not nervous like someone's going to shoot me. Just the awkward nervousness that I got when I asked Jody Cohen to my junior prom. It's that same kind of awkwardness, you know, where how's this going to go? And is this going to come off weird? And do I have snot hanging from my nose? And blah, blah, blah. A million. To, so I think you have to be able to not overcome that, but walk through it. Like, I just walk through it. I don't love it. I just walk through it. And when I see writers, I don't know. I grew up, like, when I was covering baseball, and I'd go to New York, and there'd be guys like Bob Clappish or John Harper or Joel Sherman. Those guys never seemed afraid of anything. And they never seemed nervous to go up to a baseball player and ask a tough question. I'm always nervous. I just force myself to walk through it. I think that's what you have to do. So those are two biggies. That is very good advice. (laughs) It's very good advice. And, you know, I I have sort of related to that. You were talking a lot about, like, your reporting process and how you go about doing it. And I think this is, like, very interesting for, like, young journalists that are listening to this, this idea of, like, how do you go about like tracking these people down? What what tools do you use to like do these investigations to find someone like at Sports by Brooks to track down these people for the book? When, where when you call them, they say, "How did you find me?" Like, what advice would you give to people and how to go about doing that, finding these people? Well, I mean, one thing I will say is it's a lot easier than it used to be. Well, it's a lot easier and a lot harder. Like, uh, I used to use Nexus Lexus a ton because it has an amazing database for home phone numbers. The problem is nobody answers their phones anymore. Nobody answers home phones anymore, if they even have them. But they do have addresses. Now send letters to people, but that's usually not that effective. Um, I think Twitter and Facebook, I'm always like, recently I told my wife, I'm like, I'm quitting Facebook. I hate Facebook. It's so negative. I blocked half my high school classmates because of their love of Trump and hate of Obama and all that stuff. But then I'm like, I can't. I actually can't do it because I needed to find people. Um, Facebook is an amazing resource for finding people. And Twitter is an amazing resource for finding people. Twitter, you can just find so many people using Twitter. It's unbelievable. Even if it's not if it's not the person, it's someone who knows the person or someone who went to high school with the person. You don't just search for their name. You search for the high school they went to. You search for the place they worked. Or you search for you know some commonality. And you oftentimes find someone. And maybe that person won't know the person, but that person will know someone who knows the person. So I, I don't, I'm on Twitter a lot. And it probably seems like I'm addicted to tweeting, which I might be. But my main reason I love Twitter is because it's the best people finder I've ever come across. Well, people, I find people are less responsive. Maybe this is different for you, are less responsive on Twitter than I'm always hoping they'd be. Like, I'll tweet at them or try to DM them. And the the response there isn't as great as I hope it would be, but it helps give you a lead. So do you, um, this is a dumb question. It sounds worse than this. Do you have a blue check? I do. Uh, It wasn't my choice. I just kind of woke up with it one morning and I was like, oh, I have a blue check now. Yeah, so I know it makes a difference, though. I think it makes a difference. It makes such a huge difference. I think it does. It's like having the uh, American Express black card when it comes to finding people. Because they see it, and they're like, oh, this person's legit. It's so stupid. It's absolutely inane. uh, And I got really lucky. 
someone started an account, Jeff Perlman's a douchebag, and I wrote to Twitter, and I was like, this guy's not me, but he was using my face, and he was using, like, tweeting kind of as me, and uh, I think it was Jeff Perlman is a cackling douche, was his tagline, and um, they gave me a blue check, and I that blue check, again, is like an American Express, Express black card when it comes to finding people, because people are smart. Well, I, I would figure the fifty six point seven thousand followers you have would be good enough too. Like that, that seems like to be a pretty good like stamp of authenticity, no? Well, I follow a zillion people, so yeah. Can you I, like it, why? I, I'm always like trying to curate my follow list, but you're just like screw. Let me go at it. I'll tell you why. Um, my wife and I figured this out together, and I gotta say, so my note. If you look at like Skip Bayless, just as a bad example, he you has like, a zillion followers, and he follows no one, right? No one, not one person, which I think is the most arrogant and nonsense thing ever. And he's, you know, like, it just, to me, it screams, I'm Skip Bayless and you're not. But if you look at, like, a Kobe Bryant or a Taylor Swift, they usually have millions of followers and they follow, and they follow maybe 200 people, 300 people. And there's something terribly uncool about following tons of people. But what I found early on, if I'm, a, if I'm writing a book about the New York Mets, just as an example, I'm going to follow people who are Mets fans and I'm going to have in my tagline working on a book on the New York Mets and they're going to follow me back. And then when I'm tweeting out about the book, I have this instant audience of Mets fans. And the other thing is, it's cool. It's like, I'm happy to talk about the Mets with anybody or Favre or the USFL. If people DM me, I don't care if I don't know them. I'm happy. I, I actually enjoy the dialogue. You know, I'm a writer. I have no life. So like, there's no <laughs> negative to it. There's no negative to it. You can form sublists where, you know, like I'll follow Maggie Haberman and Paul Kane and different news writers just on, on a sublist. But um, I don't see the disadvantage, except that makes me look like a loser. But I am a loser, and therefore that's not a problem. Well, I think like by now we know that anyone who's on Twitter is probably a loser. Like that, yeah. that's just kind of like axiomatic at this point. My kids would definitely say so. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wish we could go on further. I would like to start a writers who are like nervous and have anxiety about cold calling people group for us, like a support group. Man, I mean, I'm the president. I want to be the president. I, I just want to be in the chapter. Just uh, someone I have, I can text every once in a while to be like, all right, I got to call this person, right? Like I need to do this. Well, I, I think a I lot of people go through that. Oh yeah. I hate, I hate in this business, anyone who tries to put off an image that's not real. Like, we're writers. We are not particularly cool people. I am not a good dresser. I buy most of my clothes at Marshalls. I wear baggy shorts most of the days. I'm not cool. I don't try to be cool. I suffer the same nervousness, anxieties, blah, blah, blah. When this book came out, I knew it was going to be a hard sell. I tweeted out, I will appear on anyone's podcast. I will do anyone's Q&A. I don't care who you are, how many followers you have. I did a podcast today. I can't imagine more than three people will listen to this podcast. I don't care. Like, you're doing me the honor of talking to me. I'm not doing what people say thank you. I'm like, thank you. You're letting me talk. So I just think, like, we all have that nervousness, or most of us do. It's totally normal. And I hate writers who pretend they don't because it's real, and it's scary, and it's freaking annoying. So suck it. Yeah, I think that's the perfect place to end it. Uh, so we'll, we'll do that. I'm not going to tell you thank you because you just told me explicitly not to do it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to us. We have him on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Someone yeah. thanking us for a change. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody is in the mail. Check is in the mail. Oh, great. We look forward to seeing it. We need to. <laughs> we need to supplement that reporter salary. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, uh, great of you to come on. Everyone, you can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. 
You can and should go buy his new book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. I love your podcast. We'll link to it. We'll link to it in the newsletter. Yeah, we will. And the way to, where to buy the book. And he has a podcast, Two Writers, Sling and Yang. I listen to that weekly or however often the, the podcast comes on. So we just ripped that off, basically, right? We're just, yeah, yeah. We're just a ripoff of his Q&A series, The Quaz slash podcast. You should call your podcast Two Writers Bringing Yang. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that's not gonna like open us up to an easy IP suit at all. Yeah, as long as you promise not to sue us, maybe. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jeff. Awesome you to have uh, have to come on with us, and uh, that's gonna do it for another thirty cast. For Jared, I'm Mike. Everyone, thank you for listening, and uh, thanks for reading the newsletter and subscribing. We'll catch you guys next time. Bye.